Welcome back to Minty Podcast. I'm Cindy. My name's Kathy. And I'm Glee. So for today's Halloween special, Gliana and I have prepared some case studies um, that we will be going through and we'll just be discussing about some gruesome and some icky past. So Gliana, do you um, want to start with your case study? I'm very excited for this episode. Me and Kathy love like gruesome horror scary stories and um cindy over here (laughs) that's um, why there's an empty number of you know cases today case studies yeah uh, an even number today so but it's all right it's all right it's gonna be fun she's forced to listen we're forcing her to listen to our she's so guys if you see her take her headphones out anytime (laughs) during this episode please Go to her Instagram and DM her and say <laughs> that <laughs> she has to watch the podcast again. Okay, <laughs> let's start. So my case study is about the vampire of Nuremberg. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But this begins in April 1972 in Westfriedhof Mortuary. So this night watch guard called Georg Vomut. Oh my day! German name. <laughs> Girl decided um, to get a foreign story today and just decided to go to Germany for some reason. So she gets some difficult names. Exactly. I know. I didn't think of that. Anyways, so there's a family called the Cadavers in the mortuary, and they were complaining to the night guard Georg um, that their jewelry was missing, like the jewelry on the deceased. Um, it was missing. It wasn't there anymore. And this is common, right, for um, mortuaries where jewellery often is found at the home and it wasn't even on the body or they're put into, like, cases, like locked cases, um, so then it stays safe. But Georg one day found a money box on the table and it was forced open and emptied. So he investigated this discreetly to maintain the credibility and uh, of his colleagues and make sure that no one was like suspicious of each other and like make sure that the mortuary like wouldn't, you know, like crumble because they were the night watches. They were responsible for everything, like how it runs and like keeping it safe. So he wanted to investigate discreetly with the intention of confronting like whoever he found out was the um, perpetrator. Georg was unafraid. He was a six foot tall, like, bulky war veteran like he, he was unafraid of confronting this thief um so he went home that night and there was a storm and his house is right next to the mortuary and his neighbor um lives right in front of the cemetery near the mortuary his neighbor rang him and said that she saw dark figures moving through the graves so he went to the cemetery and then he saw the figure go to the mortuary he found okay so he it was in the dark, right? And then he found a small figure with spectacles, dark hair, and he saw that figure next to a 15-year-old dead body of a teenage girl. And when Georg saw the intruder leaning in to kiss the girl on the lips, he pounced and he ran after the intruder and the intruder, like, 
like whipped around, saw him, and then he like sprinted off, tried to run away, obviously. Georg, obviously, as a six foot tall war veteran, was like, no, he's not going away. So he was running yeah. after the intruder. He grabbed him by the collar, pulled him under a uh, an elevator because it had like a, a diffused light. And then that's when he saw who the intruder was. But their confrontation was interrupted by a bang. And the intruder had shot Georg in the stomach. Uh, I think he injured his small and large intestines and his bladder. So this allowed the intruder to run away. He got free and then Georg had to crawl to the nearest phone to tell the police what had happened. Oh, so gross. Because this wasn't uncommon in Germany. This There was uh, lots of grave diggers and like people who were into necrophilia so um, I'll just tell you some of the recent events that happened during this, this time period. So um, a staff member had seen the body of a girl removed from her coffin and she was posed. So she was leaning against the coffin and she was naked. Her lips and necks were bruised with bite marks and there was two burnt out candles surrounding her as well as other corpses who were sitting up. They were like positioned to sit up around her, facing her. So that was one. Oh, <laughs> another one. Oh, that's so gross. <laughs> yeah. <gasps> <laughs> another one it, um, happened 64 kilometers away, where an undertaker saw a body of a recently deceased 40-year-old man. Oh, sorry, woman sitting up outside her coffin with burnt-out candles surrounding her. So there's a pattern to the to the killings. Um, also there was a pastor who was preparing a body, I think for a um, burial the next day. And he remembered that the coffin, like he closed the coffin the night before. And then the day after he went to church and when he opened the doors, the coffin lid was open and the 50 year old man was laying there with a hunting knife in his chest. Um, another one is there was a guy, I don't know who it was. He was going to pay respects to his mother um to his mother's grave and he found a decapitated decapitated man like just sitting there next to the grave and his head was gone the man's head was gone it was nowhere to be found it was just it was just a body sitting up near her mother his mother's grave and this was Um, common in germany yeah there was like grave diggers and and like criminals around the area yeah it was a bit bit frightening Why? Wow, to say the least. Why? Yeah. Oh, People no. are in that apparently. They're into Honestly, that there's actually quite a few grave diggers like around the world. <sighs> <laughs> anyway, um, there was another man visiting his cemetery. Uh, not his cemetery, like a uh, family <laughs> member's cemetery. And um, he spotted a grave dug up and then there was a naked body of a young girl sitting upright in a mound of dirt. Back to it's back to Georg. <laughs> I forgot to note that um, when the perpetrator shot Georg, he smirked at him like an evil smirk, as if like he was proud or something, and then he took off. Um, and then Oof. so when Georg called the police, he was able to give them a detailed description of the perpetrator. The next day, the police looked up all known grave diggers and criminals in the area, but they were all accounted for at the time of the shooting. So they had no leads at this point. 
So I'm going to sidetrack to a different story, which is still related to the vampire of Nuremberg. Um, it's about a 24-year-old named Marcus Adler and a 19-year-old called Ruth Lissy. So when they met, it was love at first sight. You know, they were inseparable. They were always with each other. Um, but the only thing is they lived far away from each other. So Marcus lived in Yugoslavia <laughs> and <laughs> him <laughs> and his mom ran a freight business in Ubenhausen. <laughs> um, and Ruth was a salesperson who lived more than 470 kilometers away in Nuremberg. So Marcus would often drive in his silver Mercedes to, oh, sorry, light gray Mercedes to visit Ruth, like whenever he could, whenever he had free time. So on March 6th, um, Marcus visited Ruth and he picked her up from her house, said hi to his her mom. Like they like said like goodbye, like we're going to go for a drive. So they drove to a forest near Ruth's house. Um, this forest was common for like shooting deers, target practice, like all that. Um, they parked at a scenic like place somewhere nice and they dozed off. It was 6 p.m. at this point. Like that's when they went for their drive. So they, they were like looking at the forest and then they fell asleep. Nearby, a short spectacled dark haired man drove by on a red moped. This forest, by the way, was the perfect place to lay low and wait for the Nuremberg mortuary shooting incident to cool off. The man on the moped spent all day exploring and carried out target practice. So he was practicing shooting and he was just looking around the forest all day and then he saw the light gray Mercedes. Um, he pulled over to approach the car and he started to sneak over to see who was in there and find out what was happening. The man opens the driver's side door and Marcus wakes up. So the man on the red moped pulls out a pistol and shoots Marcus in the head. And the gunshot woke up Ruth, who was asleep in the back seat. So he saw that she woke up and he shot her in the chest. Then he got into the car and shot both of them execution style, which I think is just like in the back of the head. Um, and then, overwhelmed with impulse, the man climbed into the car and sucked the blood from Marcus's gun wound. And once he had enough, he clambered into the back seat, pulled Ruth's cardigan off, lifted her bra and licked her wound and then proceeded to suck the blood from her bullet wound on her chest. After 10 minutes, the man <laughs> felt stronger and he was overcome by a, like, a sense of satisfaction and he felt stronger and better than before and he, he just... He felt good. He got he got off on it. Like he felt good from it. Um, seeing as they were both Wait, dead, was he? A, he wasn't a vampire, though, right? No, just he was a, a human. Human being. No, he was just a normal guy. Yeah. <laughs> Why do people like this man? Jesus. Once they were dead, he looked into Ruth's um, purse. He took her engagement ring. He was rummaging through her purse found Marcus's um, wallet and was looking through that when he realized that someone was walking down, like approaching the car and it was a hunter. And then near him was like a suspicious, like scared looking like little man. Um, he was wearing a leather hat and sunnies. So 
He rushes off to the moped and he sped off. The hunter went to the car to find Marcus Adler and Ruth Lissy dead. Um, he was shocked and he fired his shotgun into the air to like signal that, you know, he needed help. He needed backup, but there was no response. So he freaking walked one and a half kilometers to the nearest phone to um, inform the police. Postmortem reports show that their wounds were sucked clean of blood, which means this guy spent like enough time sucking their blood <laughs> to have literally like drained the veins. This event occurred 24 hours after the shooting of Georg Valmut and in the same city. So that that's the night watcher. It happened 24 hours after he got shot and the bullets were a perfect match. So obviously the police were like, oh, we have a lead now. Oh, the same guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the same, the same guy. So um, the head of Nuremberg's homicide squad called the disturbed perpetrator a madman. And they said that they have to act fast or else there will be more deaths because he was on the run and they thought that he was like not mentally stable. Mm. So the task force was formed to hunt down the killer and a $6,000, I forgot what their currency was and I'm not even going to try to say it. So let's just say $6,000 or whatever their currency is, reward was put out as well as a detailed description of the dark-haired spectacle, strange-looking man. So this guy... This this random guy, he was um, walking around in the city, and then he saw a newsletter, uh, a newspaper that like had the title "Blood Sucking Gun Wielding Madman Terrorizing the City." So this vampire, like vampire of Nuremberg, was terrorizing the city, and he was making headlines, and people started to like know who he was, you know. So this guy named Helmet. Um, saw the description of the killer and thought it reminded him of his colleague, a 41-year-old named Kuno Hoffman. So um, he had like the same short black hair, spectacles, and he had a red moped. But like he didn't really like think that he could be capable of it. You know, Hoffman seemed like a pretty harmless little guy you know he didn't really get into trouble like he worked at the docks loading boxes and um helmet actually found out that a few moments before he saw the the newspaper that hoffman had decided to quit his job and he no longer wanted to work at the docks but he wanted to go to hamburg so helmet rushed to the phone and called the police because he was like this is sus like why is he suddenly like quitting his job and wanting to move out of the city so let's talk about Kuno Hoffman for a little bit. He was a troubled child. He had a broken family and a bad childhood. He was violently beaten by his alcoholic father. And by the age of one, his father shoved him in a sack and threw him away. And then like as a child, he was hung from a wooden window frame and beaten. And um, Kuno's mother claims that his abuse led him to become deaf and nonverbal. So Kuno Hoffman couldn't speak. And the only way he could um, communicate was through like hand gestures and facial expressions. But doctors said that his disabilities were a result of a middle ear infection. Anyway, um, <laughs> the father wasn't really present in his life. He was often in prison and... Um, he would be in for burglary, child abuse, and attempted murder of a woman that he raped. 
Um, Kuno isolated himself to be safe whenever his dad came home from prison and he was obviously fearful of his father. He went to eight different schools for the deaf and then he got a shoemaker's apprenticeship and he quit because he was he was very angry in that job. He didn't like it. So he found a job in the agricultural estate in Nuremberg. And although he was considered a diligent worker, he lost his job after asking for a raise. Now, Hoffman has an IQ of 70 and his inability to communicate meant he had limited occupational options. So this resulted in dispersed jobs and he would be involved in crimes every so often. First, it started with stealing a bicycle and then it progressed to burglaries and arson. So the courts tried to help him placing him into medical and nursing homes. And he spent a total of nine years in nursing homes and another nine years in prison. Sometimes he was accepting of his treatment and sometimes he would put up a fight. He took advantage of the lack of security at the nursing homes and medical facilities that he was at. And he escaped a total of 12 times. And by 1971, he had only spent five years of his adult life free of any form of incarceration. That is very sad. He went to live with his brother and sister in Nuremberg, where he got a job and life seemed to be on track for the first time ever. However, Hoffman was unappealing. He was ugly and couldn't form romantic relationships. This led him to become addicted to porn and he would often go to brothels, but he felt like the workers only wanted to get the job done. This made him bitter when they looked at him in disgust and he started to get angry and like resentful. Um, He desired to be loved tenderly and permanently. So loneliness consumed him over time and his sister actually told him to buy a rubber doll, but he was determined to fix his situation in different and better manner. <laughs> um, right. yeah following Helmut's tip to the police six cops were sent to Kuno's workplace he matched the description but the colleague he matched the description but his colleagues didn't believe that he was capable of committing these crimes um they described him as a harmless guy a diligent worker yada 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 Police found out that he wasn't on the premise, so obviously a search commenced, and luckily they found him hiding behind a truck. He took off and was caught, and he was interrogated for 50 minutes where an interpreter was called in to speak on his behalf. He was caught lying, and his version of events were contradicting. At one point, the police threatened him with a crowbar to confess to the murders. He only admitted to things that he wanted to, and meanwhile... While he was getting interrogated, um, police officers were searching his house. So they actually found his red moped at his address, so at his sister's house. They found um, Ruth's engagement ring that he took after he shot her. They took the human skull. Remember the stories that I was telling you about the human skull was gone when the body was just sitting up? They found that that was in his possession. They found a set of duplicate keys to the Vestfried Hof mortuary. So that's when he shot Georg. Georg, yeah. Um, And they also found the items that were reported stolen by the cadavers from the mortuary. 
So the only thing that the police couldn't find was his pistol, like the murder weapon. But after a few moments, a police officer who was searching the laundry of Hoffman's house came across the washing machine and started pulling it apart like piece by piece. And there is where he found the pistol that Hoffman Hoffman used to kill Ruth and Marcus. This police officer called up the detectives who were interrogating Hoffman. And when the detectives told Hoffman of the news, his face twitched and his lips started trembling. And then he started like motioning like aggressively. And then he eventually like admitted to his crimes and like what he did. So Hoffman was obsessed with reading. Right. In 1966, he purchased a book titled The Black Magic, and it was by an occult group in Hamburg. Um, The text fostered what would become a lifelong fascination of the dark arts. So basically, Hoffman was into like his his favorite things were like Satanism and um, he wanted to use these kinds of teachings to help him like improve himself he became infatuated with vampirism and necrophilia and in 1971 to 1972 he forced entry into many mortuaries in germany so he would steal and duplicate keys so he could move in and out with ease and he would dig up graves or enter crematoriums to violate the deceased he would also like stab them with knives and razors um, and then he would drink their blood He would occasionally chew their flesh, cut off their heads, remove their hearts, examine their internal organs. Like, this guy was just... Anyway. um, (laughs) Sometimes he would manipulate bodies into, like... Like, you know how um, I was telling you, like, there was a girl and she was posed and then there was, like, other corpses around her and they were, like, staring at her? Yeah, he would, like, manipulate bodies to reenact a scene or, like... Anything, anything that he desired. He would also have sex with the women that he found attractive. So the dead bodies that he found attractive, he would violate them. And he traveled to every location on his infamous red moped. So by May of 1972, Hoffman had desecrated the remains of 35 individuals. So um, he used, yeah. He used obituary notices published in the newspapers to help him choose his victims. At one stage, his brother thought that he was up to something and he confronted him saying, what's going on? Are you crazy, Kuno? Why are you studying the obituaries in the papers? Why are you visiting the morgues when you don't need to? Do you want to enjoy the dead women? Like he was confused. And then Although um, Hoffman didn't respond, the accusations made him increasingly cautious. He believed that carrying out black magic rituals and drinking blood from the dead would make him handsome and strong. (laughs) He also thought it would give him back his hearing and his voice, and then he would have power over women. So obviously his childhood, like, played a massive role in why he does the things that he does. And it's kind of sad, like, you know, how he thinks that killing people and drinking their blood is going to... I genuinely want to see if this guy's actually good-looking, though. Oh, sorry, how ugly he is. Not, not <laughs> He's not good-looking. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I wanted to see how ugly he is. What's He's his name? still obsessed with the dead. He's like... Do you know Hoffman, yeah? 
<laughs> yes. I don't care about you. Ew, he's like kind of scary. It's not focusing, but I'll just put up a picture right here. Don't, it's scary. I don't like this guy. Ew! No, it's just in my like history. I don't like this guy. Oh. Okay. So, um,. He would go to the morgue to steal valuables, but on May 5th, his mind changed and he wanted to violate a pretty girl um, and also, like, he wanted to find a pretty girl whose blood he could drink. So Hoffman was already in the morgue when Gagord entered, but because he was deaf, he didn't hear the watchman coming. And this is why, like, he was so startled and he shot Gagord. Um... Then he ran to his moped, which was nearby, and he hid it in shrubbery, and he made his way home. Then at 9 a.m. the next day, he drove to the forest where he hid during the day, and this is where he killed Mark and Ruth. So he told detectives that the pretty young girl, Ruth, was better than all the other girls in the graveyard. So, like, he's saying that her blood and, like, her blood was just better than every other girl that he had drunk like from the graveyard um he then hid his pistol in the washing machine and quit his job hoping to leave the city this is like the why he did the things that he did his colleagues were very 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 shocked um they like had very good character descriptions of him as i said like they thought that he was harmless a diligent worker like they thought he was a normal guy and um, this informed the interrogators. Hoffman was able to hide his true nature and he was well capable of maintaining a double life. It also showed that he was capable of controlling his behavior and he had the capacity to make decisions on his actions. So Hoffman realizes this and he changes his strategy. So instead of denying everything and making up stories that didn't match, he began acting insane. He would break furniture in his cell. He would start writing bizarre letters. One of the letters was addressed to the homicide squad and he claimed to have twice the amount of victims as Martin Rohak. Um, This is a serial killer in the 1500s and Rohak had the highest number of victims in the Czech lands, allegedly killing 59 individuals in a four-year span. He also claimed... Hoffman also claimed to be innocent, like Vera Berner, famous throughout Germany as a woman who was the victim of the miscarriage of justice. And he claimed that he was the nephew of a British queen. So this guy was just trying to like seem as crazy as possible, like saying delusional things. So then people would think that he was insane. Um, Hoffman also said that he would cut off the judge's head and put it in a dog bowl. Um, and he asked for his murder weapon back so he could use it to bring the dead back to life. So this guy was just crazy at this point. Well, trying to off, off his head at this point. He was trying to seem like he was off his head, mm, so he wouldn't be convicted. Uh, yeah. So he was first in court in August 1974, and um, the building was packed with onlookers because obviously, like everyone knew about the Vampire of Nuremberg at this point. And he was trying to paint himself as insane. And can you believe, like, his lawyers, his attorneys would have to back him? Mm -hmm. Like, 
they knew yeah. all the deaths and they have to like paint him as someone who's insane and unfit to make his own decisions. And so, as I said, he was either going to be convicted of murder or convicted unfit to plead and place in a mental health facility. And this is obviously what him and his attorneys wanted. Psychiatric experts debated Hoffman's mentality for over two years. And this caused the court hearing to be suspended for an indefinite amount of time while the psychiatrists were trying to figure out like if he was actually insane or if he was sane enough to make his own decisions. And obviously this is what they wanted. During the suspension, he was moved in and out of numerous mental facilities where his psychosis was examined and treated. He returned to court in July, 1976, so two years later, and he seemed well, although um, his recollection of his crimes remained inconsistent. He claimed that he acted in self-defense in the mortuary and in the forest and claimed that Marcus Adler surprised him during his target practice and knocked his gun out of his hand. And that's how he got shot, which doesn't really make sense. Okay, um, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So there's no real certainty of Hoffman's conviction, even to this day. So depending on the source, Kuna Hoffman's outcomes vary. So some report that he never faced a full trial after being deemed criminally insane. This version ends with his detainment in a psychiatric facility. Other more reliable sources state that he was ruled sane and faced court for at least mm. the shooting attacks. They claim oh, yeah. that Hoffman was sented for two life sentences uh, for the murders of Marcus Adler and Ruth Lissy, with an additional 10 years for the attempted murder of Georg Vamut. Um, while in prison, he taunted jailers, requesting for one last sip of a virgin's blood. Yeah, there have also been reports that Hoffman was released in 2004 for reasons unattained. Um, this source states that Hoffman went back to live in Nuremberg and in 2008, the now 75-year-old was working on a memoir. The, the status of his work is unclear. Should you believe this is the true ending to the Kuno-Hoffman story, it is important to note that no one knows where he is today. So it's an open case. No one knows Shut what happens. He, and he could still be alive. He oh, could have memoir up. out there. <laughs> he'd be old, but he could still oh, yeah, be alive. He'd be old. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a story oh, of the Empire of Nuremberg. <sighs> oh my gosh. <laughs> See, Cindy, they're not so bad. Right. These case studies are pretty. It wasn't fun. that gory. <laughs> I truly okay, hate stories like that. It's because, like, I don't know. Like, I do feel bad for people. But because, like, you know, when you talk about, like, them and their past and, like, why they do the things that they do, like, mm -hmm. you can just, they truly are insane. But obviously not every, like, child is, like, born insane. They're, like, put in that situation where, like, you know, their parents treat them wrong and which drives them to, like, become insane and, like, be mentally unwell and do these, like, horrible things. So I do feel for, like, criminals, but, like, at the end of the day, it is so freaking scary, like, you know, because it's just so, I don't know. Yeah, I, I get that. Like, the only reasons why these criminals actually come to be is, like, ma the majority of them is just the way they were raised. 
<laughs> like like because of the circumstances that they were put in growing up like it had only led them to think like that was the only solution in life and that was the only way for them to be um and But yeah i have a crazy. similar yeah it oh is. yeah you have a similar not me <laughs> but like oh uh, Where's she going? <laughs> no no but like in my case study like i had there's a similar scenario in that sense that like it really depends on what happens like um especially when you're growing up mm. in most of the cases yeah. that you see you know like But when he was you know like when he was <laughs> you know like when he was um talking about when he was trying to like convince that he he's like mentally ill like he's fully like crazy in those cases i feel like they're still conscious in a way like you were saying that he was like pretending so that he can get out of it i feel like a lot of criminals try to like use the mental health card to like get out of prison but like it's still so freaking crazy like what the frick i don't know and also like that his siblings like his brother and his sister like didn't commit crimes to this extent mm -hmm. like you know obviously like they're from the same family same genetics whatever but like maybe his experiences were worse than his siblings and it led him to be the way that he is Did these siblings ever get tortured by their parents? Or was it just I, him? I don't know. It didn't say in the case study, but I'm pretty sure it was just him. It's, it's just, like, it's so sad to think that, like, there are cases that, you know, like, parents are abusive or they have relations that are abusive. And it's just, like, you, you don't realise, like, the way that they're like, this is also because of the way they were treated when they were younger or, or how... They had grown up in an environment to think that stuff like that was normal, you know? Like, it's just, like, a domino effect yeah. in, a, in a way. And it's just, it's sad because, like, people don't realise or, like, they don't, like, know if they should intervene, like, in fear, if they are going to retrieve, like, uh, retrieve, if they were going to receive, like, repercussions from it as well, you know? So it's almost just, like, a case of uncertainty in these, you know, unfortunate Emily's yeah, situations. <laughs> She got there. <laughs> I, yeah, it's just unfortunate. So shall I start with my case study? Yes. To set the scene, this is in 1972 in United States. And at this time, there were several cases of like UFOs in the air and like just the idea of aliens had been introduced. In this small town in the States, um, there was a family called the Brobergs. There were, you know, mother and father and three little girls. Um, they were 12, 10 and 8, right? So Mary Ann, the mother of the family, was a chorister in the local town. And this one day, you know, she was just leading the choir at the church and she'd seen a new family come into town and participate in that one mass. So at the end of the mass, she approached this family And, you know, she was like, hey, like, nice to meet you. You're like, your new faces. Like, I just wanted to come by and say hello, you know, get to know you and like ask, you know, about your family and stuff. And so the father of the family, his name is Robert. So we're going to call him B in this family, right? She was getting, Mary Ann of the Brobergs were getting to know B from the Birchtolds. Um, and like, she'd realize, oh, you know, your family has really similar to mine, like, mother and father and five kids similar ages to the Brobergs three kids no five kids five kids so the Birch Toad had five kids oh. and the Brobergs had three kids oh okay yeah 
right? And both fathers of both families were both Bobs. They both had the name Bob. So then Mary Ann was like, oh my gosh, you know, like our family already has so much in common. Like both our husbands are in the business. Like you should really come back to our place and get to know my family as well. Cause I really think that we would get along really well. And, you know, like charismatic B was like, oh yeah, like no problems. Like we'll come by your family one day. Cause they really like, it was a very small town. So they all lived essentially on the same street. So this one day, like the family's like, came over, they got to know each other, the Bobs got to know each other, and Rob Boberg was like, oh my gosh, B is such a cool guy, like, we have so much in common, and, like, everyone in the family had a best friend in the other family, right? So, the, like, the, the eight kids were really close to each other, and Gail from the Birchtolds and Mary Ann from the Brobergs were really close as well, and, like, everything was great, and the two families got along really well. So, moving on a little bit, this one day, B called Mary Ann and was like, hey, you know, like, I don't have any lunch. I'm at the store. Is it all right if you bring some lunch out for me? Which is already a bit strange, but okay, it's like, it's whatever. Like, mm-hmm. he's a close friend. I'm going to, you know, do my favor and bring out him lunch. So she comes out, she brings him lunch and they're having lunch together. They're chilling and everything's fine. And he starts to get a bit close to her, right? And she's like, oh, you know, I have to admit, though, things were getting a bit, a bit, a bit far because B was so different. Like he had qualities that her own husband didn't have. And she had to admit like he wasn't a bad looking man. Like, you know, he was a very, you know, charismatic guy. He was like, he was great. So B slowly got, I'm like shaking. B slowly started getting closer to Mary Ann. And eventually they started kissing and he started groping her and she had stopped her. She stopped him. Like she wasn't going to let him get past that. Right. And she already knew it was too far because she had already been married to Bob Broberg for 12 to 13 years already. She was like, okay, this is enough. I'm going to go home. This is too much. Right. That's just the start. B and his relationship with Gail is not exactly sexually active to say the least, because they've already got five kids. They, you know, there's not much left at home. Like they're just going to live in this new town and they're going to, you know, work for their children kind of be. As in a few days later, B calls Bob Broberg, right? And he's like, hey man, you know, like, are you free at the moment? Like, I just want to go on a drive. Like, I'm really, you know, just bored at home. Like, I don't want to be at home. Like, I'll just come by, pick you up. Let's go for a drive. So Bob is just like, oh yeah, he's my mate. Let's go. Let's go for a drive. So they're on the road. They're like chatting, having some music on. And B stops the car and B goes, you know, dude, like, I'm just so sick at home with Gail and like things are so boring and I'm just so sexually, like I need it. Like I want to do it. Like I'm just so horny, you know? And Bob is just like, yeah, like bro, like I I, I don't know what to do. You know, like he's in his mind, he can't say anything. And B turns around and he's like, Hey man, like, can you just give me a helping hand? Like, can you just relieve me? And Bob is just laughing, like, like, they're just laughing it off. They're like, oh, you're so funny, B. Like, how can you, you know, like, it's funny you bring it up. And B's just like, dude, like, it's, it's just some high school stuff. It's nothing deep. Like, can you help me? And Bob still to this day does not know what was going through his head at that time. Relieved him, right? They didn't have sex or anything, but he relieved him with his hands, right? And so... At this stage, 
both Broberg's were having a side thing with B. Birchtold, but neither, neither of them knew, right? So they went on with their life and it was already strange because B always came over to hang out with the Birchtolds by himself, hang out with the kids, even though he had five kids at home, which the Birch, like the Brobergs found strange. Like, that's just so weird. Like you have your own five kids at home. I don't know why he always comes over, but you know what? He's a close friend. It's fine. So moving along again, B realized he had, oh my gosh, you're scared me. (laughs) Don't tell me he's listening with the listen, kids, bro. Listen, like, listen, just listen, anything? just listen. Okay, just you. listen, just listen. <laughs> we'll get there, we'll get there. Wait, why didn't they just tell each other and then they just could all do it at the same time and then no one would have to keep it a secret? Just, just, oh my God, why are you suggesting a threesome? It was the 1970s. <laughs> it's better than they cheating on each other. They wouldn't have known. Okay, so, but the thing is, they both regretted it, right? So they just wanted to completely leave it to the side. They didn't say anything about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Right. And every time B came over to the Brobergs, I mean, the, yeah, Brobergs. Every time B came over to the Brobergs, like the whole family realized he had his attention on the oldest child. Her name was Jen. And at the time, Jen was 12 years old, Karen was 10, and Susan was eight, right? They had a two year age gap between the three of them. So this one day, one day, B comes over to the Brobergs. He sits the Brobergs down at the table and he's, you know, they're having a discussion. And he goes, like, you guys, like, I know that I've had, like, a really bad, you know, like, recently I realized that I've had an obsession with Jen. And I went to a psychologist to, you know, see why and, like, find the roots of this and why I was feeling like this. And, like, I was asking my psychologist to help me find, like, treatments to help me get over this obsession with Jen. And what he said, my psychologist, what he said was the only way for me to get over this was to spend time with Jen, not do anything with her, just lie next to her as she's sleeping and just spend the night with her. I wouldn't do anything to her, I wouldn't touch her. I just need to lie next to her. If you don't trust me, you can call my psychiatrist and he'll tell you the exact same thing, right? And the thing is, right, because at this rate, at this stage, the Brobegs and the Birch told they were extremely close, right? And with their history, with what had happened with the both of them, they were just like, yeah, if, if it helps you, then of course, like, you know, like I, I obviously we, we do feel a bit uncomfortable about that, but if it's going to help you with your therapy, then we'll allow it. That's fine. So they were like, okay, that's fine. Like he's reasoning. He's, he's he, he talks to, he talks separately to Bob, to Bob Broberg. And he says, the reason why I've had this obsession was because when I was four years old, I was raped by my aunt and she, you know, she raped me several times. And so then this obsession with taking care of younger people, that's why, like, I, I just have this urge to take care of Jen. So if he allowed me, like, to spend a few nights with her a week, just to lie next to her, not to do anything, that would be great for my therapy. So the, the parent, the Broberg parents were like, okay, if it's going to help you, Bob, that's completely fine. We'll let you do it. So this happened four times a week for a span of six months she would go to sleep he would lie next to her he would play a really strange recording which you can hear if you want to if you if you want to hear the recording just just go on youtube just search it up it's 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 disturbing so he would lie next to jan 
and she would be asleep and he would just listen to this recording and sometimes he would just like pat her head, right? And this went on for six months. After those six months, and I'm telling you, like their families are still very close, right? So they're just like helping B get over his, you know, his fear and his like trauma, right? So this one day, B comes over to the Brobergs again and he asks Mary Ann, mom of Jen, like, hey, can I bring Jan to horseback riding? I know she loves it. Can I take her with me this one day? And Jan's like, oh, Mary Ann's like, no, like she has piano lessons tonight. It's a school night. She still has school tomorrow. Maybe we'll find another day, right? And Jan is just there and she's like, no, mom, like I really want to go horseback riding. Like I'm never going to have this chance ever again. Like you don't understand, mom, like I really want to go. And keep in mind, like Jan and Bob, B, right, the two, they have a, like, he has a very good relationship with all the kids, you know, like, as in, like, he's just the second father to them, because he's always coming over, he's always hanging out, and he's a really good father figure to them, so Jan essentially looked at B as a father figure, like, you know, he's, he's really outgoing, like, he's always taking care of me, like, mom, can you, like, we all trust him, like, mom, can you just let me go, and so Mary Ann was like, okay, that's fine, B, just make up, like, pick her up after her piano lesson, go and make sure you get home before Bob comes home for dinner. And so B's like, yeah, no problems, no worries. I'll pick her up after her piano lesson. We'll go horseback riding and I'll take her home immediately. So that's what he did. Picks her up after her piano lesson. And the thing is, Jan had a lot of allergies at the time, right? So he gave her some pills and was like, have your allergy medicine before we go to horseback riding because, you know, you don't want your allergies to act up. She knocks out doesn't remember a thing, doesn't remember her, you know, doesn't remember the route to the stables, doesn't remember riding any horses, doesn't remember going home. So that night, the Brobergs are like, where the fuck are they? Like, how are they not home yet? Like, it's been a whole day. It's late at night already. Gail comes over and she's like, have you heard from B? Like, what is happening? I don't even know where my husband is. And they're like, it's okay, don't worry. Like they must have had some, they must have had their car broken down or something. That's like, like, it's fine, right? We'll wait over the night. The next day, they're not home. And obviously the Brobergs at this rate are like, what the fuck is happening? I'm really like, I'm, where is our daughter? Where is she gone? And they're about to call the police and Gail comes over and she's like, it's okay, just trust B. Like we know B, everybody knows B. He's such a warming father figure and he's taking care of our community. It's okay, let's just trust him. They probably, you know, ran into something on their way to the horseback riding and just give them a day, right? This goes on for another day, right? And this rate, Marianne's just like shitting herself. She's like, no, I have to call them. And thing is, they went horseback riding on the Thursday, right? They didn't call on the Friday and Mary Ann was on the phone on the Saturday, but then they were like, okay, well, our department is closed on the weekends. If you have an emergency, you can call the FBI, right? You can call straight away to the emergency. And she's like, oh, I don't want to bring in the, you know, like it's, it's, it's B, we trust him. Like no way something happened between him and her, right? Like there's no way, there's absolutely no way. It's okay, I don't want to bring in the the, the professional people, like, I don't want to bring in the, the FBI and stuff, like it's completely fine. If they don't come back on the Sunday, we're definitely, we have to call. It this wasn't is dragging until Sunday. It, <laughs> it wasn't until Sunday. <laughs> it wasn't until Sunday when they decided to call the FBI. 
And immediately they were like, what the fuck? It's been five days. How the hell? Oh, th three days. It's been three days. Sorry, um, you haven't caught us. Like, this is a kidnapping case. Like, how have you not caught us? Like, you don't even know what's happened to her at this rate. And they're like, no, 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 don't worry. We trust B. They must have faced something. Like, you just need to help us find them because we don't know where they are. They haven't communicated us for like three days. So we just needed to call you to ask for help to find them. And that's when the police were like, you guys, absolutely, you guys have been brainwashed by this man. Like, your child is kidnapped. Like, do you guys understand that this man has kidnapped your daughter in plain sight? Like, what the actual fuck are you guys doing? So to change the perspective from the, like, the current situation in the town to Jen's perspective, she wakes up out of nowhere, right? She wakes up and she's still really groggy. She doesn't see it. Like, she's like... You know, like she was on sleeping pills, right? She broke up and she's like, what the hell? Like I can't see. Her hair, her ankles and her wrists are strapped down, right? Stop. Strapped down. Oh my and <laughs> it's 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 okay. And all of a sudden she's she looks to her right and there's like a little intercom box, right? There's like a little like a speaker box, right? And this really monotone voice speaks out and it's like saying like a female companion. And huh? Like I said at the start, at this time, this is when UFO sightings were rep reported and like the whole idea of whether aliens were real or not. So she, she described, uh, keep in mind, she's a 12 year old, right? Obviously she's gonna believe if she like, she thinks she hears shit like this, right? So she describes it as a, almost like an alien voice talking to her. And when she hears them say like female companion, like, like you're awake, like yada, she is so heavy on sleeping pills she knocks back into sleep she knocks back and she completely knocks out again it wasn't until the second time when she woke up when the voice started speaking to her again and they essentially said female companion um you are like half alien half human your mother is your biological mother is human but your father isn't your biological father right and they said, like, because you are half human, you have a mission to complete on planet Earth to save the alien Earth. Right. And realistically, if we would hear this at this rate, we'd be like, what the fuck? How do you how do you believe that? But in that context, because there were UFO sightings and because she's a 12 year old and because she's heavy, like she's a very dedicated Catholic and like she believes in the whole life and death situation, like she fully believed it. And this alien voice continued on and said, your mission is to conceive a child with your chosen male that we choose, right? And then, oh and then she was like, if you don't conceive a child with this male companion by the age of 16, you're going to vaporize, you're going to die, we're going to kill you, right? And if you don't choose to do it, it's fine, we have a backup. We can take your sister, Susan, the youngest one, her eight-year-old sister, who's also half alien and half human. Right. And because she's the oldest sister, she's like, I can't do that. I have to complete the mission myself. And like, she's, you know, she's really eager to get this done now because she wants to save planet Earth. Right. And so the voice goes, go to the motorhome because they were in like, because when B had kidnapped her, he, he brought a motorhome with them. The, the alien voice said, go to the front of the motorhome and you will find your male companion. So she abruptly gets up and then she runs to the front of the motorhome and she opens the door. And there's B sitting on the couch and he's completely like, he's scratched and he's bleeding and he's like, you know, like he's in a, a terrible state. And she shakes him. She's like, 
inside she had felt so much relief because the male companion that was chosen for her was someone that she believed and she loved and she trusted right and so she's like b wake up like you know we have a mission with like this is our mission we need to complete it to save planet earth and that's when you knew like i've got it in my hands like i've completely deceived her like she would definitely complete this mission for me and so over this duration right keep in mind like she was kidnapped for like four months, like four or five months in that one motorhome, right? And through the entire time, he was slowly traveling from the States to Mexico. And during this period of time for four months, he would get her to read books about sex and how to conceive a child and like learn about the whole sexual production and all of that stuff, right? And it was this one day, I think it was about two months in, like a one or two months in, when the voice spoke to her again and it said to her, Jan, it's time that you talk to your female companion and ask him to do what makes humans happy. Right. And in this, you know, in this situation, what makes people happy is sex to conceive the child. So she goes up to Jan, Bob B and she's like, oh, it's time. bless you. So he, she's like, I think it's time. So B takes her into the room closes the doors and goes on to only insert an inch of his penis into her, right? He only inserted a penis, an inch of his penis in every single time they had sex, right? And this happened essentially like every single day, probably several times a day until they had reached a Mexico, right? And things in the States, you can't get married at the age of 12, but in Mexico, you can, right? So he wedded her in Mexico and legally they were married, right? Because she was like, she was legal at that stage. And like, they were still investigating the States. They're tr still trying to find B, like, what the hell is happening? How are they not, like, how have we not found him yet? And then one day, B called his brother, Joe, who was still in the States. And he said to Joe, you need to get Mary Ann to give us permission to get married in the States. And then I will come back because he's not, he's not done. Like he's not going to come back now. Like he's already charged with kidnapping, you know, charges. He's not going to come back and he's going to be put in jail. Like he's only going to come back unless Mary Ann gives him permission to marry Jan. And so Joe proceeds to call Mary Ann and was like, Hey, you know, like he's saying the only way that I, he's going to come back with your daughter is you if, if you give permission for them to get married. And obviously Mary Ann and Bob are like, no, what the hell? Like, are you insane? Why would I let a 40-year-old man marry my 12-year-old daughter? Like, are you insane? And so Joe relays the information back to B and is like, they're not agreeing with it. Like, you just, just come home and just deal with what you've done. Like, you shouldn't be living a life like this. And Joe was adamant on getting his brother back into the States. So Joe works with the FBI. He traces his phone and the phone call traces to Mexico, right? And that's when the police from the States had communicated with the FBI in, the Mex in Mexico to find their motor home and take them into custody, right? And take them into the jail. And that's when one day the Mexican police like banged on the door, they bashed in and they took B and Jan into a car and put B into the jail, right? And this is when they're commun like they're contacting Jan's parents, like come over to Mexico, like let's fly your child home. And right before they have flight back to the States, 
um, Jan was granted to visit B in the jail cell. So Jan comes down to visit B in his jail cell and he proceeds to say, you know, I was visited by Zeta and Zethra. I think that they were the names of the aliens. Like I've been, you know, visited by the aliens as well. And they told me to tell you not to mention a single thing that we have done and that to say that this was purely a vacation and I apologize for not telling your parents for taking you so far away from them and not notifying them for the last few months right and he said he said to, to Jan like if you tell anyone about anything that's happened like you can't tell them anything about the aliens not to tell them about the pills that she that he was feeding her not to tell them about the mission and therefore not tell them about any of their sexual experiences between the two of them and if she had mistakenly said anything about the mission, her sister Karen would have gone blind, her father was going to be killed, and her sister Susan was going to be taken instead. So he was like, you need to keep your mouth shut. You cannot say a single word to anyone, right? You go home and you cannot be close to any other male companions because they're going to be watching you. You can't do anything for with any other males, okay? can't be talking to them you can't be doing anything to them and Jan being the 12 year old that's already brainwashed at this point was like don't worry be like trust me like I'm gonna keep my word I'm gonna get you out of here like I'm gonna go home I'm gonna get you out of here okay don't you worry don't you worry we'll see each other soon so her parents come to Mexico and they take her home and the first thing that Jan actually physically says to her mom right because she can't talk to any male companions so she's essentially just disregarded her father from the picture she doesn't talk to him she avoids him she doesn't say anything to him she doesn't even touch him at this point okay that sounds a bit weird but you know she doesn't hug him right so she talks to her mom and she's like mom what what's what's gonna happen to, what's gonna happen to be like he's he's stuck in the jail so we can't leave him there like you know him you trust him we can't just leave him there and obviously like her parents are like what in their heads they're like what the hell like he kidnapped you how could you still be so you know like why are you defending him but then her mom is just like, we're not worrying about B right now. We're worrying about you. We're going to get you home and we're going to get you like checked up and we're going to make sure you're safe. Okay. Like this is, we're not going to talk about B right now. We're going to get you home. Let's go. So they fly home and on the flight, she sat with her mom, completely just avoided her dad. And this was when Bob Broberg was just like, that's not my Jen. That's, that's not her. Like she's, I don't know who she is. Like she's gone. Like this is not my Jen. So they go home and um, she's checked by a physician and because he only inserted an inch of his penis in her hymen wasn't broken. So they were like, okay, you know, there's no sexual abuse. There's no signs of sexual trauma. She's completely fine. Like, like the, she, she doesn't seem to be in any form of stress or, you know, like she's fine. Like, like the, and her parents are like, okay, that's fine. That's good. That's great to hear. That's a relief to us. Right. So she goes on with her life. She returns back to school um, and things are going well, but obviously Jan is still avoiding all of her male companions like she's not talking to her dad anymore she's not talking to her like friends at school anymore and but she still goes on with the life and like things things are it is what it is you know like there's not much she can do so in her mind during this time away from B she's still thinking about her mission right she's like I need to conceive a child by the age of 16 or else like you know like I'm gonna vaporize and the earth is gonna be doomed. Like, I don't know what to do. Like I need to get back with BA SAP or else, you know, mission's not gonna be completed. And at this time she was about 12, 13 ish. So she still had a few years. And it wasn't until the Christmas of that year when Gail had came over and she had talked to Bob Broberg alone at first. And they had a little discussion and then 
Gail left and Broberg went back to his wife, Mary Ann, and was like, B's telling us to drop the kidnapping charges. He's telling us to drop the kidnapping charges or else he's going to reveal our dirty laundry. He's going to reveal about our affairs. Like, I know what you've done with him. And obviously, like, because this was such a, like, it was such a small community town. There was no such thing as cheating. There was no such thing as divorcing. There was no such thing as affairs, right? So these two being a couple that I wouldn't say selfish, like I kind of understand that, but it's also your life, like your child's life here. They instead chose to sign the affidavits, affidavits and drop the kidnapping charges. So now B is clear of any, you know, trials or anything and he returns back to their town, their little town. And so obviously because it became such a nationwide issue about the whole kidnapping the first time, that the community were, it was all chaotic. Like they were just like, how did you guys drop the charges? Like, I don't understand. What the fuck are you going through your head? Like, how could you drop the kidnapping charges against your child? Like this man is a predator. He's a pedophile. Like, what are you guys doing? Like you just drop the charges like that. And because little did everyone know he had blackmail against them. So that's why he had, they had dropped the charges against him. Right. And again, like this went over a really long time, like a long period of time. B started coming back to the community and he was slowly welcomed back into the church. And, you know, like he was repenting and people were like, he's becoming a changed man. He's changing himself here. Like he was slowly getting, you know, the trust of people again. And he was becoming such a big figure in the community again. And he was, you know, doing good deeds overall. And throughout this time, he was still sending love letters to Jan. Like he was saying, like, dear, I miss you so much. Like, you don't understand. Like, I've never loved someone as much as I've loved you. And, you know, like, it's just, I miss you so much. And I can't wait to see you, yada, yada, yada. Jan being like a very young teenager, right? She genuinely believed that she was in love. Because she's receiving all of this affection at such a young age, she, you know, she, she genuinely believes that she's in love with this man. Like she genuinely believes that her relationship with this man is like pure, like it's actually true love between the two. And you know, when two people receive the affection back and forth, like they genuinely believe like what they have is real, right? So it gets to a point where they're just sending love letters back and forth. They're secretly communicating on the side. And then one day the whole manipulation process begins again, right? So B calls back home to the Brobergs and Marianne answers the phone. And he's like, hey, you know, like, like I want to tell you everything that's happened. And if you want to know, you should come to my motorhome. Like you should drive here and I'll tell you everything. I promise you, I'll tell you everything that happened when I took Jan with me. So Marianne, being the dumbass she is, <laughs> drove up to B's motorhome and she came in. On the drive, she's like, I don't feel good. Like, I don't think this is going to end up well. Like, I don't know what's going to happen, but, you know, I need to know what happened to my daughter. Like, I'm going to go. So she goes and they're talking, right? He tells her everything that's happened. And then this feeling in Marianne came back, this feeling of being actually cared for and actually being listened to came back to her, right? And he slowly came back to her and he started holding her hand. He started touching her hand and they kissed again. They started kissing. Uh, and this time, this time things escalated. They started having sex and she came back. <laughs> she came back several times and this affair lasted eight months. How? 
He <laughs> just kidnapped her child. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> Anyways. So, yeah. So, this affair goes on on the side. And at this point, like, her husband, Bob, like, he has no clue. He still loves his family. He's still trying to get his daughter, Jan, back. But she's just avoiding him. And his wife is just off somewhere. Like, every, like, a few times, a few days a week. Like, she's just gone. And then she comes back a few hours later. That summer, B had a summer holiday job that was open. And he wanted Jan to come work. And because Jan was so emotionally involved with B already, she was begging her parents, like, mom, please let me go. Like, I really want to work. I really want to see B. Like, please just let me go. It won't be long. Like, you can drop me off and then you can pick me off after summer. And, you know, because Bob did not want his daughter anywhere near B, was like, no, absolutely not. You are not going down there. I'm not allowing you to get anywhere close to him. But Jan, being the assertive girl now and being the girl that got what she wanted, especially because she didn't, like, take anything her father had said into regards, was like, no, I want to go and you're going to take me, mom. Like, you're going to let me go and I'm going to do my summer job down with B down there. I don't care what you say. And this one night, Marianne was watching the TV and suddenly she heard a little creak on the side and Jan had come out of bed and Marianne was like, I know you want to talk. Let's come here. Let's have a proper chat. Let's sit at the couch. I'll turn off the TV. We'll have a chat. And the moment Jan realizes that Marianne had saw her, she went back to her room straight away. The next day, everyone was already out of their beds in the, in the kitchen having breakfast, but Jan wasn't there. So Marianne and, and Bob went to her room and checked it. She wasn't there, but only a note was there. Right. And so on that note, it said, like dear Bob and Mary Ann like you guys never let me do anything and you guys say what I'm not doing is 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 not right so what I'm going to do is wrong but I want to do like I'm going to do what I want to do and I'm going to live the life I want to live and because I don't you know connect with your religion and your morals are just genuinely incorrect that's why I'm going to live the life I'm going to want like I'm going to live the life I want to live and it's going to be without B it's not going to have B in it and I'm going to be out by myself you don't like don't try to retrace me don't try to find me just let me be okay lots of love jan and so that evening <laughs> yeah right and so that that evening that evening marianne gets a call from b and b's like where the hell is jan she just called me she says she's not home where the hell is jan how have you guys like she came home and you guys don't have your eyes on her. Like, what the hell are you guys doing? I'm, I'm worried sick about Jan. Like, where the hell is she? And Mary Ann and Bea are just like, I, well, she ran away. She's not home. Like, I don't know where she is. I want to find her. But then I, I just don't know where to start. Like, I don't know what to do. So B is just like, well, you guys get your asses up and fucking try to find her. I'm going to do the same. I'm going to go try to find her. Yada, yada, yada. Right. And like every second day, B would call him, Mary Ann, where is she? Like, what, what? Have you, have you heard from her? Like, is she okay? Like, what's happening? And then Mary Ann's just like, I don't know. I haven't heard from her. She just disappeared. Like, I have no idea where she is. And a few weeks later, B calls home and B goes, I just heard from Jan. She said she's doing fine. She's living on the streets. She has no money. She's gone into the prostitute life. She's selling like meth on the road. Like, she's just, you know, she's by herself. And Marianne's just distressed. She's like, I, I, I don't know where to go. I don't know how to find her. I don't know what to do. And B's like, it's okay. Just, just calm down. Like, don't worry. We're going to find her. It's okay. And it goes on. It goes on for like three months until one day the police were like, 
we should, you know, we should like, not stop, but we should sleuth and genuinely monitor the movements of B because we know where he's living now, right? We finally found where he was living. So we're going to follow him and see if there are any movement from his modem home or if there is anything that he's doing that can be anywhere connected to Jan. So this one day they followed him and he went into a phone booth and he was on the phone for like 10, 15 minutes and he left. But stupidly, right, the, the FBI went into the phone booth and the phone book was still open onto a certain phone number, right? So they called the phone number and they were like, hello, like, who is this phone? Like, who does this phone number belong to? And it was a girls boarding Catholic primary school, uh, Catholic school, right? And they were like, oh, right. So do you know anyone under, under the name of Jan Broberg? And they immediately were like, no, 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 we don't don't have anyone under that name like we don't know who you're talking about we don't know who you are and that's when they were like do you know a a bob birch told like does that name sound familiar to you and then they were like no no no, we don't know who they are like i don't have we have no clue who you're talking about we don't want you know we don't want anything to do with you like please hang up the call and that's when they're like no we're the fbi we're trying to find a girl give the description and like she's been gone for the last three months yada 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 and that's when i'm assuming the nuns or like the the, the people of that boarding school were like oh my god are you talking about jen i think he she he put her under a, a different last name but are you talking about jen this like yada 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 this description and her father bob yada yada with that last name her father and they were like that is not her father where the hell are you guys? We're going to retrieve Jan. And that's when the people of the boarding school were like, it was a few months ago when this man, he said he was a CIA agent, right? And he had just escaped from the, um, the uh, what was the, the bombings? I don't know what was happening at that time. There were the, some bombings, right? So he was an agent and he had an, an army agent and he had just survived from one of the bombings. And they told us to keep his daughter safe. And if anyone was to call us, asking for us to we were to deny everything we wouldn't allow we wouldn't allow anyone to have access to jen and that's when they were like hey well we, we know who it is now we know who the fuck that guy is so we're gonna go and we're gonna take jen home so they went to the boarding school they found jen and it was exactly her with a different last name under her name right took her out of the boarding school took her home and they were like you <laughs> you are not going anywhere anywhere like you are going home we're gonna keep you home you are not going anywhere so it turns out the night of Jan's second disappearance, B had came over to their house and helped her get out of the window, out of her back room, right? He'd taken her to this boarding school, put her into this boarding school, and he visited her every weekend. And every single time they had met with each other, it was just, it was purely sex. Like, it was nothing else. It was for his, like, his amusement, his entertainment and his pleasure. And in her mind, like she still had this mission to complete. So she's like, okay, we're going to do what we have to do to complete this mission. So take her home and they bring her back home and B is nowhere to be seen. They can't find her. They can't find him. They, they don't know where he is. And this time Jan comes home essentially soulless. She's not even human anymore. She doesn't talk anymore. She's completely like she's just avoided everyone like she's pushed everyone out of her lives she's just it's not jen it's it's not jen anymore and this went on for quite a long period of time and it was closer to her 16th birthday and she was like i'm so screwed i haven't completed this mission 
our world is going to be like our world is doomed I don't know what to do I haven't seen B he hasn't talked to me I'm so terrified for the life of my families and for me and I don't know what to do right because she was four years yeah it has been yeah so this this happened across four years like this happened for the longest time like they were being stupid for four years yeah yeah so it was um the night before her 16th birthday and she was about to get a gun because she was going to prepare like if anything had happened she would have killed her sister susan first and then killed herself you know, to get rid of the alien, you know, species on earth kind of vibe, right? That was her thought. That was her thinking process. Her 16th birthday, she blew out her candles. She closed her eyes and she was like, this is it. Like, I'm, I'm, like, I'm going to vaporize. I'm going to be completely gone on the, on the face of planet earth. And I didn't complete my mission. I didn't do what was expected of me. She opened her eyes and everything was, you know, obviously everything was still normal. Everyone was still going on with their lives and whatnot. The next day... She woke up, again, everything was normal, her, her, her sister was not blind, her father was not cured, her sister Susan was not taken away, and that's, that's when she finally realised that all of this was just a myth, all of this was B's way of brainwashing her, none of this was true, no such thing as aliens were true, she was being manipulated for the last four years by this man, and she genuinely believed that she had a mission to complete with B, and so then B at this point, I think, was still on the loose. Like they, he was nowhere to be seen. Like he was just like nobody knew where he was. Nobody knew his whereabouts. And so then, fast track, like ten years later, 10, 20 years later, Jan is now like she she's you know determined to be like a like a motivational speaker. And she's like you know like I'm gonna make sure that girls at that that age can avoid predators and like pedophiles and people like him right so she, she her and her mom marianne wrote a book her and marianne wrote a book and about the entire four years of her kidnapping cases and you know about her experiences with b and that's when she realized like a few other victims had also you know came out and they're like i went through the exact same situation as you and yada 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 she included them into the book and everything and so she published it and it was so popular like she had so many book sales, so many book meets, like she was blowing up. And as a form of protection at her book meets, she had signed with Baka, which is a bikers uh, association for like sexual assault, um, like victims, right? So they always like stood outside of her book meets and like, you know, protect her, um, her people that come to the, these book meets. And this one day a car drives by and it's B. He's came by to, you know, like say, like, this is not true. Like all of this is absolute rubbish. You're turning the story around. Like, this is not true. Like nobody should ever believe this. And at one point they like, the Barker, like they like ran him over. Because <laughs> he tried to run one of their people over. So they're like, we, they caught him and everything. And he was put into court. Like they were, you know, like they had to be, this and this wasn't even the kidnapping charges anymore because it had been so long and everything had already been put down to a side. So he was trespassing like Jan and Mary Ann's bookmates, right? So they were brought to court and yada yada yada. And he asked her like, "Why do you have to do this? You know, like why? Wh- what was your decision? Like why? Why did you have to write a book about it?" And she was like, "I'm determined to teach other children and girls to avoid people like you, right?" And she was straight up and she was telling them, and she's like, "I." I 
like you've ruined my entire life and I don't want people like you to ruin other girls' lives like this, yada, yada. And he finally publicly apologized to her. Although after 10 years, I don't know if it carried much meaning, but he formally apologized to her. Like I, I genuinely, I'm very upset with what I've done and I'm apologized for all the emotions I've put onto you and everything that I've done to you over the duration of the four years. And before anything had to be done, he committed suicide. So yeah, that's the end of that story. So now the whole family of Broberg is left with a trauma of the four years that Jan had to go through and there, there were no charges put on to B because he, he died at that point. So yeah. So that is Abducted in Plain Sight. Ta-da! That was like the dumbest, most like preventable kidnapping I've ever heard in my whole entire life. I feel like that's why I was so like, I was so like, Okay, but like, first of all, freaking Mary Ann is so dumb. Like, she was so easily manipulated the entire. No, she literally went there to confront her husband. I mean, B, for stealing her child. And then how did the result to that? for eight months for bloody eight months but like even imagine the aftermath like when they're writing the book about everything that happened wouldn't jen be like what the fuck like yeah like my mom in the documentary that i watched on youtube um, sorry on netflix um be uh, not be bob constantly reiterated 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 the entire documentary he was like i don't understand how oblivious we were to this the entire four years like he still doesn't understand to this point how easily he had been manipulated and brainwashed by one man and over that that duration of time like it was just insane i watched the netflix series the the the, uh, netflix documentary it was it's actually like it's so good but it's so Irritating. 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 No, but and also, like, it's not even like both families are like affected. Imagine the five kids. Yeah. Their dad is dead. Yeah. Not even that. Like, freaking. No, but like. Psychopath. Imagine imagine if you found out that your father's a pedophile. Like, that's terrifying. Like, that's absolutely terrifying like you you lived your whole life and you grew up to find like your father being the most you know he was such that's the thing he had this made like a massive mastermind in his head plan he was going to deceive marianne first and then he was going to deceive bob and then he was going to get to jan because he had already deceived those two and this didn't happen once but this happened twice which is what like completely just blows it out of scale because it's just like how did you allow that to happen a second time how that is yeah just like how Hmm. i thought the exact same thing when i was watching the freaking see thing is the first time i watched this i didn't even know what it was like i I was just like oh it seems pretty cool like i'm just gonna watch it i ended up watching it three times to just make sense of it to just make sense of it because it was just so absurd to think that someone had let it go to that extent yeah the after the first time like like how do you allow it bro what do you mean how do you allow your child to be kidnapped twice by the same man 
the same men. And how do you not suspect it like the second time? Like, why do you not call the police and be like, my daughter ran away. Um, She's been kidnapped before by this man. And this man has been like tormenting my family. Like, it doesn't make sense. You learn how to make sense. And you would let your daughter just find out? Like, how? Like, no, nothing. Like, they were just like, oh, she wrote me a letter and she ran off. I don't know where she is. Like, what? That's so great. It doesn't make sense. The whole thing doesn't make sense. Like, the whole, after the documentary was released on Netflix, um, Jan and Bob Broberg received so much hate. Like, so much oh, hate. Yeah. And it's, understand- like, from a viewer's point of view, like, that's understandable. And to this day, they haven't forgiven themselves for it. But it's just like... Mm. And even after, like, the kidnapping, right? How can you still trust that family? Like, I would have just cut ties. Yeah, How? and the police, they had said, like, once Janet come back the first kidnapping, do not talk to the, the Birch Tots. Like, you do not have any communications with them. Like, do not hang out with them, nothing. They didn't listen. They still hung out with Gail, the five kids. Obviously, B was in jail, but, like, they still hung out together, like the Gail and the kids still hung out with the Birch Top, uh, the, the Bro Bags. Like, makes no sense. Makes mm. no sense. Anyways, did you find them scary today, Cindy? Find the story uh, scary? It wasn't as bad as I expected. Like, I've heard, like, I've heard stories like this. And oh my God, like, the FBI was so smart in this case. Like, because, you know, for all of the other, like, criminal stories and stuff like that usually the fbi is the one who's like stupid like they just like oh just like <laughs> does not acknowledge it like they don't they don't investigate further because they're just like oh we've already but like in this case the family was so dumb like how yeah oh yeah how? the family was so dumb it- even in like cindy's oh sorry even in like glee story the F- fbi like they got to the bottom of it real quick yeah yeah like they found everything at his home real quick Period. And how do you think about, like, pulling apart the washing machine? Like, yeah. I, I would have never thought of, like, hiding something inside, like, screw by screw. Yeah. So um, cops can do their jobs, guys. <laughs> I mean, FBI. I was, I was watching the Sintoya one yesterday. Do you remember Sintoya? What was that one about? The 16-year-old that killed the guy that was, like, about to rape her. Ooh, I did The one from America that was, like, it blew, like, it blew up. In when was she born? She was born in 2004. Oh, I didn't hear. It blew. Oh, we we were only like one years old, but you know, but like blew up. Bro, did you hear about the um the 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 you know the movie The Orphan? The horror one. Yeah, the horror one. Yeah, that's based on a true story. Shut the fuck up. Did you not know this? I mean, I haven't watched the movie, but like. Oh what? my gosh, it's a little girl and she like murders, like she gets adopted and then she, she murders everyone. In her, well, she takes a liking to the dad and then she tries to kill the mom and like the kids and oh my gosh, it's horrible. And she's actually like an old lady, but she has a condition that makes her look like a child. <gasps> I think I've heard about this. Fuck what the hell? Fuck that. Yeah. What the crazy. hell? Wait, what? crazy, bro. Oh my days. Wait, really? Hmm. Wait, isn't that thing on the uh, uh, on Netflix like a little girl with the pigtails? Is that her? Yeah. Is that the, the and then the thing on Netflix. <gasps> That's fucked up. Yeah. So horror movies next time? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Horror not. movie screening? <laughs> Absolutely fucking not. 
with Cindy? Never in a million years. Mm, Why yeah, would you want to watch that? That's horrible. Why would you want to watch scary shit on purpose? I don't like, like this girl. Yeah, no. Anyways. <laughs> Anyways. Hope you guys enjoyed this Halloween special episode. We also have an Instagram, TikTok, and Spotify if you want to listen to us on the go. Make sure you give this video a big thumbs up and don't forget to press the notification bell to be reminded every time we post a new video. Thanks. See you next week. Bye. Bye. You need to promise me. Right. Like I was communicated by the aliens as well, so I know everything that's happening, right? Oh my gosh. Hi Dad. <laughs> oh my god, scared me. <laughs>